I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome on today's podcast Avril Benoit. She is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders in the United States. Welcome, Avril. Thanks very much, Alexander. Nice to be here. I wanted to invite you on our program to discuss the impact of the pandemic on your organization. Uh, so specifically in the midst of what is now understood, unfortunately, too many months late as a global pandemic, um, how has your operation shifted to be responsive to this climate? Well, it was quite alarming, certainly initially, to grasp the, the scale of it. Um, and in the early months, we identified a couple of things we needed to do right away. Um, and so there was really quite a scramble to do this. Thankfully, we have a lot of experience with infectious disease outbreaks. And so we, we have our systems um, pretty much well-oiled from all the interventions we've done with things like Ebola. So what we did initially was just uh, make sure that we were supporting authorities to provide care for COVID-19 patients where they needed it, which was not everywhere. And sometimes even where we would offer it, the authorities would say, no, thanks, we're covered as far as that goes. Um, and then we, of course, find later that they weren't. Um, another big priority was to protect people who are vulnerable and at risk, obvious, in a, a context of medical operations in more than 70 countries where you're, you're running clinics and you're delivering babies and you're doing neonatal care and you've got a lot of um, vulnerable older people even that come through in all kinds of primary care settings. And so it was important just to make sure that our... Uh, essential medical services could continue running in a safe way, protecting not only the people we were helping, but protecting our staff. So like everyone else, there was a big scramble for PPE uh, to make sure the staff were safe. There was a big scramble to ramp up the usual infection prevention and controls uh, to, to start really paying attention to the science to make sure that we were doing the right things. And of course, a lot of things, for example, around mask wearing are, are pretty standard in a medical setting, but we were all very concerned, well, who needs an N95 and who doesn't at a time of scarcity? All the same questions, in fact, that we were facing here in the U.S., uh, we were facing around the world uh, in many places where you know, we're operating medical programs, we're running these medical services from high-end surgery to uh, measles vaccination programs, and suddenly everything has to change in terms of how you're going to, to manage those services. So for us, it's been a major preoccupation, as you can imagine, and we've been uh, fully busy with it. What specifically, if anything, um, were you enlisted to do in helping with COVID specifically and the response to the disease as it has emerged in various places around the world? Well, if you take a place like Yemen, just as an example, so that's a classic conflict zone where you'll find doctors without borders or, or as we're known internationally, Médecins Sans Frontières or MSF. You'll find us running hospitals, uh, doing war surgery um, and uh, also primary health care and, and maternity care and so on. Uh, so in a, in a situation where you've got a conflict zone, also what is considered to be the world's worst food crisis, um, you know, the civil war also leading to a lot of concerns about obstruction of aid. 
uh, as Human Rights Watch has reported recently uh, with respect to Yemen. You've got a fuel crisis, you've got blockades, you've got reduced access to food and healthcare and clean drinking water. Uh, everything is, is pointing to a disaster once you start seeing those COVID cases um, come in. And of course, testing capacity in zones of insecurity is extremely limited. Yeah, you can do it in a hospital or a clinic when people come in, but there, there isn't a lot of the kind of outreach work and community care that's functional in situations like that. Uh, at least not equipped to be able to do COVID-19 testing. So what we have now is, you know, more than 2,000 confirmed cases uh, of coronavirus in Yemen, including around 600 deaths by the last count that I had access to. And uh, the actual tally, of course, is believed to be much, much higher as testing capabilities are severely limited. Um, and also just you know, one of the factions in that civil war, the Houthis have stopped issuing statistics from the areas that they control. So for us, what we end up doing is just negotiating with the authorities. Look, we have this capacity. We can do certain things. Um, We, of course, at the same time are urging uh, countries that are involved in that war or providing resources to Yemen. You know, this is a proxy war to to, uh, address... Um, all their activities around the country really with a concern for helping in, in this particular pandemic. Yemeni authorities, of course, we're urging them to allow people to safely access health care and aid and not obstruct them. Um, the, and there has been a lot of obstructionism. So, so then it's not just a question of treating patients with respiratory symptoms in, in four COVID centers that we run, and we're supporting those in Sana'a and in Aden, um, receiving patients with similar symptoms in various health facilities that we manage and support in really almost all the states or the governorates in, in Yemen. Um, but we've also uh, been training health workers and staff, whether they work for us or uh, the, the, the health authorities on COVID-19, health awareness, um, it enhanced infection prevention and control measures, and especially the established hygiene uh, facilities, you know, adapting the projects across the country to respond to the novel coronavirus. So it's a, it's a full-on effort to do the, the regular work, which is incredibly complicated and risky at the best of times. And when you add, of course, this, we have to work in partnership with the people that are controlling these different zones uh, in a civil war. So there's just a constant negotiation to try to convince them, look, we can help. Please let us help. Trust us. Um, and that work of trust building, of course, is not something you can just land at the last minute. I just snapped my fingers like that. But, you, you know, just arrive and say, here we are, trust us. It's, it's years of establishing those relationships with uh, those who were responsible for provision of health, even in a civil war. And so then they turn to you and they say, we can't, we can't do this. We're overwhelmed. Can you cover us here? Can you cover us there? And there are certain things that we, we can do and other things we, we can't. So, for example, there, was, there were a lot of governments um, that were asking us to provide them with PPE, and we barely had enough. We were scrambling ourselves for our own facilities. Um, and that was our, you know, the primary concern that we had is to make sure that all the, the healthcare that we were offering in different parts of the world was adhering to the best possible standards of protection that we could offer for our staff and our patients. So it was just not in our, 
in our mode to become a supplier of PPE when we're competing with states who have a lot of money and even states within states like the U.S. where you're just, you know, it's a, it's a race to the bottom and a, a free-for-all um, in, in those early months of the pandemic. The reality is that this pandemic exposed the vulnerabilities of health systems in even quote-unquote developed countries. And we were all at such a disadvantage because of the novel nature of the virus and the lack of cognizance about what had hit us. Um, in a time when, when developed countries are experiencing these vulnerabilities, uh, how does that at all shape your work in, in reorienting kind of around what is vulnerabilities in every community? We had to ask ourselves that in uh, many parts of the world where we don't normally run operations of this kind. So in the United States, we had had a little bit of an intervention after Hurricane Sandy a few years ago, but this pandemic was um, hitting New York City so hard, that's where we have our headquarters, that we had to look around and say, wow, we have a lot of aid workers in the U.S. who are grounded from international assignments because of the travel restrictions. They're calling us and saying, look, in my community, there's X, Y, and, and Z kind of need, and I have contacts. For example, I'm down here in the American Southwest. I have good contacts with the Pueblo uh, and the Navajo people. We can, we can maybe work with them. They, they need a lot of help. Meanwhile, we're also getting um, calls to our headquarters here in New York saying, Look, we're a, a group, an association of migrant workers in, in Florida. Um, many of us don't have access to health care. We're not sure what to do. We're working, living in congregate kind of barracks, and we move on buses to the fields, and we're really worried um, that we're not going to be able to protect our members. So all these various requests were just flooding in. And, you know, what was fascinating also for us uh, here is that Corporations were contacting us saying, look, we have a manufacturer in China for these PPE. Would you like us to, you know, we'd like to facilitate donating some to you. And you'd get little amounts of varying qualities as we had to put supply people on this, professional supply people to be able to even manage the quality control and then the redistribution of some of the PPE that we were able to, to you know, scramble around, scrape here and there to, to be able to provide. But we did decide to mount operations uh, in, in the U.S. So we ended up having projects in Florida, as I mentioned, uh, in the Southwest. Uh, we had some activities in New York, uh, working with um, housing-affected people, homeless people, in Michigan, uh, and now in Texas with long-term care facilities, really supporting the staff who are managing those kind of centers where you've got people inside, the residents are of very high vulnerability, and the staff are, quite frankly, overwhelmed, uh, both with the logistics of how to manage it, but also with the emotional toll that it takes when they're blamed for all that ends up going wrong in a facility when there's an outbreak and, and the deaths that occur. Uh, and then also in Puerto Rico, uh, where, uh, again, you know, we have, we have members who, of our association uh, living there and saying, look, we've got fantastic contacts we think we can really run a, a small little program that'll make a real difference. 
um, working in close collaboration with, with the local partners uh, to provide primary health care consultations in homes and these pop-up clinics to people suffering from chronic health conditions who had been unable to or fearful of going to healthcare facilities because they're afraid of catching COVID-19. Um, and this is one of the things when we look at the death toll in the U.S., 200,000 people have died. There are probably many more that have died because they did not seek care or their treatment was interrupted as a consequence of different services being shut down for fear of, 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 uh, of them contracting it. So the team uh, in Puerto Rico, for example, has been monitoring um, symptoms of COVID-19 patients uh, and people who test positive, so just following up with them. A lot of people test positive but are asymptomatic, and if they're in vulnerable situations in life, it's good to just check in on them regularly. Um, MSF working across the island, and MSF is Doctors Without Borders, working around San Juan and traveling to more remote areas of Puerto Rico. And this is, this is unheard of for us. I mean, normally we would be in the low-income countries, maybe middle-income countries that were in the midst of a real crisis, whether it's political crisis or there are populations within the countries that are for a variety of reasons, excluded from access to health care, such as refugees. And, uh, and here we were working in the United States, um, distributing PPE and uh, doing infection prevention control training to staff in, 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 in dozens and dozens, even hundreds of facilities. And that, that is something that, that really struck us is that as the U.S. did boost up its capacity, there was, no, there was no real reason for Doctors Without Borders to be working in the U.S. But we also, we also felt that it was important for us to show solidarity, you know, that's, that sense of we're all in it together. Um, to Americans who have always supported us, you know, Americans are very generous um, with donations for our international humanitarian work. And here we were with skills, with ability, with energy, with the, the keen um, desire to help locally. Um, and so it was important for us to also work on the ground. Although at a certain point, we really have to refocus on the places like Yemen and South Sudan and others where, where we might be the only game in town. Um, and so that's, in fact, how we're, how we're really shifting now, looking at the epidemiological curves, looking where, where it's needed most, trying to anticipate where we really need to scale up. When you do look at those epidemiological curves, you see a novel virus that um, is still really unknown. Um, and even the most informed medical experts will see patients who have been suffering from this virus for weeks, and it's unknown if they're still contagious um, at various stages of it. And if there is a recovery for some people, the illness has persisted. Uh, this really has the potential to cause great despair and, and, and um, challenge the fabric of civil society. Um, and your mission is about really employing medicine and a support system in infrastructure that um, doesn't exist. Is there really a crisis point at which um, we, we need more um, recognition of, of this COVID and its ramifications for not just this year, but for, for really the decade or even the century. 
Well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, one of, the, one of the universal challenges that you have in a pandemic or any kind of infectious disease outbreak, um, and we're told that we should just get used to more pandemics. Uh, this, this is uh, not the first one we've ever had. Uh, it's obviously monstrous, but that we're likely to have more of them. And it's a lot of it's linked to climate change and the hopping of zoonotic diseases over to the human population. And, you know, all these kind of factors are, are, are presenting themselves um, to us. And one of the, one of the universal challenges that, that we face in all of this is establishing trust with the community. We saw it time and again in West Africa when we were really on the front lines of the fight to stop Ebola there. And again then, more recently, in the last couple of years, in Democratic Republic of the Congo. When the people who are in those affected areas don't trust the authorities, their own authorities, when there's that mistrust of science, of political leadership, um, to not have ulterior motives such as economic interests of their own in some of the more corrupt countries, but also just for um, not wanting to overplay the risks. We saw this in West Africa with Ebola, where even the WHO uh, was accused by us us and others of having downplayed the effect of of that particular threat um, because of concerns about trade in the West African region. And in the U.S., we've seen it, where people just refuse to accept that the science is evolving and the science has shown very clearly, for example, that masks work, that masks are among the, the, the most effective ways that we can all contribute towards stopping the pandemic. And when you have people within a population who just don't believe, and this is not unique to the United States. Let me tell you, with COVID-19, there's misinformation everywhere. And we've had to have, we have teams uh, called health promoters, and they go out and try to, um, you know, put on plays and skits and radio programs and special messaging uh, posters and things to try to convince people of the science. And, And there's it's obviously very difficult when you can't bring people together in a crowd and put on a presentation. But the stigma for people uh, in many parts of the world of being identified as somebody with COVID-19, the fact that they won't be able to work, they're considered pariahs in their own community. Maybe they're put into quarantine and forgotten. And and then they can't survive, right? And then they're wondering, how how am I possibly going to survive this? Stigma is very real um, in many, many parts of the world. We've seen it most recently in uh, in the camps in Bangladesh where you have Rohingya people in Cox's Bazar. These are the refugees from Myanmar. Uh, and when people are threatening to burn down the hut or the tent of a family that has gone into quarantine, you can imagine that people are not likely to want to get tested. They're not likely to want to uh, admit that everyone should stay away from them just for a few weeks, let them get through it, hopefully survive it. Um, and so we've got, you know, life or death stakes, not only from the disease, but the threat to people's lives um, when, it, when it comes to that, that trust issue. 
Um, and so it becomes, a, you know, a whole society approach that you have to have, because often, you know, another thing that we see in, in some countries is that, you know, the rich or the privileged or certain caste, people from a certain ethnic group or a certain region will get all the resources. And there will be these sub-pockets of those who are, are the, the, the cast outs, the, 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 the completely marginalized for a variety of reasons, who are forgotten. And then, and then you can't contain a pandemic if you don't include everybody in the strategy. And of course, you can't contain a pandemic like this if we uh, are not all, as individuals, actively involved in stopping it. And we see that in the U.S. Because people didn't want to participate, we have the results before us of 200,000 deaths and all the suffering that goes with it. And the United States is in stark contrast with um, the globalized or developed world that has armed itself with scientific literacy and discipline. And so how do you assess uh, your partnerships and realities on the ground when you have the United States and Brazil on one side of the equation, I might add India too, slightly different, and many other countries that were far more responsible in their reaction to COVID. Yeah, it's something that we see not just with COVID, but with many other health crises um, that... Um, Really, there, there's a risk um, that this global crisis uh, has, has really put into the spotlight of the, the limits of international solidarity. Because normally you would have other countries kind of leaning on each other, trying to advise, the diplomatic set working hard on this. And unfortunately, the solidarity between um, nations and around the world, it really appears to be giving way to fragmentation. So our, our response to the common threat that we have here in the U.S. has been to circle the, ra- the wagons to some extent. Um, you know, you close the borders and you're satisfied. Well, that doesn't work. So, you know, there are many other strategies. Um, and a, a stark example that actually we're really um, staring down right now is the descent into factionalism where cooperation is most needed around the vaccine. Um, Right now we have mounting bidding wars over the future COVID-19 vaccines uh, with wealthy states like the U.S. buying up uh, millions of doses of vaccines uh, to the potential exclusion of low- and middle-income countries. And, the you know, for us, you know, that's that's at a time of, of great political stress in the United States. You can see that it's politically important um, for the U.S. to be able to deliver to voters uh, some semblance of, of a solution, and that comes in the form of vaccines, uh, hopefully that are scientifically proven. But ensuring, ensuring the availability and accessibility of effective vaccines is vital to controlling the pandemic globally. So, in fact, you would want a strategy for everyone. And Normally, although we're critics of the World Health Organization, that's where it lands. That's, that's the one uh, UN agency that has all the ministers of health talking to one another and trying to break the deadlock of nationalist interests that get in the way of ensuring that any future COVID-19 vaccines, for example, are, are available and accessible to everyone and not just a luxury for the rich countries. Um, 
And, you know, so again, like this, this no country should be under the illusion that it can solve the problem for itself only. Uh, so a big part of the work that we're doing is to try to advocate that any development in manufacturing of a coronavirus vaccine and once it's distributed, we would love to help um, with doing the vaccination campaigns and uh, really, really supporting that in those places that need it most based on where the greatest threats are on the planet. And at this moment, we need to focus on sharing knowledge and solidarity uh, and just being realistic about that. So it's, it's a... It's a horrible um, challenge because it, quite understanding that, you know, right, especially in an election campaign, partis- partisanship now is, is, is being displayed by whether you wear a mask or not. Uh, you know, it's not just whether you have a political party sign on, on your front lawn. It's, it's all kinds of other things having to do with whether you believe or not that the pandemic is real, that the threat is real. And... Uh, and, we, you know, this inward-looking habit that we have um, is, is going to be our undoing in the long term. Right. And just as a very final brief question, I think what I hear you saying is that what Ebola did teach us is that with any pandemic, um, if, if you don't control it everywhere, you can't control it, period. And so there will have to be some way to ensure that COVID is managed from hemisphere to hemisphere uh, if you're ever going to eliminate it. Right. And, and, and it's true that we have been looking very attentively at the places where we tend to have our humanitarian operations. What's happening in Africa? What's happening in the Middle East? What's, what's happening in the conflict zones specifically? But even if we have, uh, you know, we, we have successfully managed it in the U.S., uh, and then it really picks up somewhere else, and people hop on planes. We see the result. It, it doesn't take a whole lot once you lower your guard, and we see this also with the uptake in certain parts of the U.S. as uh, kids are coming back to school and the college set is back partying. Uh, you know, it, it, it really doesn't take much um, for things to, to, to slip backwards. So for sure, for us, we, we're, we're buckling up for... A long haul here. And that's not even to mention the long haulers, you know, this new expression that we're using for people who have survived really severe cases of, of COVID-19 and who now have further ailments, you know, physical ailments it seems to be affecting their organs in ways that the researchers are, are studying attentively, where these people are not bouncing back 100%. Um, they're suffering consequences. And we saw this with Ebola. So this whole notion of, hey, it's all right, let's just, you know, herd immunity, let's all get it over with and just get it, recover, get on with our lives. It's actually not so simple now that we're understanding much more deeply the long-term consequences. The fact that people who have had it, who recovered months ago, supposedly, who no longer have the virus detectable, still are not okay. Um, and so... Again, you know, the, the, the goal should be to prevent as much as we can until such time as we get the vaccine. And, of course, we all know the things we can do to prevent. It starts with wearing a mask. Avril Benoit, um, Chief Executive of Doctors Without Borders, thank you so much for your insight today.